You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Tyler and Caitlin. Thank you to Emily Evans, who was leading us this morning in worship. That was good stuff. And... uh, Yeah, that's right, the appropriate awkward golf clap. Um, So great, we miss Matt and Megan, they're away on vacation this week, but we're so thankful to Emily and the rest of the team for leading us to the throne and singing things together that are true about our God, that are true about what he has done, and that are true about who we therefore are. That's worship, and worship informs our theology. Our theology in turn informs our worship, and that's what we do. We do church thus. Now, I have been gone for the last two Sundays and missed being here tremendously, but my wife Susan and I had the opportunity to spend some time uh, with several churches that we as Bethel support in Italy. And it was an amazing couple weekends. I got to preach in several different churches, got to preach multiple times at a Bible conference, met a bunch of other churches and their leaders that we didn't get to actually uh, visit. But what an incredible time to see what the Lord is doing through the evangelical church in Italy. FYI, Italy has about 0.1% evangelical Christians. It's a nation of 60 million people and 0.1% identify as evangelical Christian. It's really an amazing thing. And as we gather with these different churches, they all know who they are. There's no sort of gray area. People walk in and if they're a visitor, they are immediately just swarmed and, and people will ask them, welcome, welcome, how did you hear about us? Are you a Christian? And it's just a very immediate question. And I got to observe in this little town, Northwest uh, Italy, As a man walked in, they said, greetings, we're glad you're here. Are you a Christian? And he said, no, I'm not, Not, I'm not. And they said, well, well, you're welcome anyway. And they kind of told him where to sit, like, hey, this is what we do. This is what's going to happen. And it was really sort of fascinating. It was interesting to see the types of resistance that these churches uh, encountered. There is an institutional religious entity in Italy, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, that is very strong, very um, suppressive and active against any other form of faith. And so these churches in all these different little towns receive direct opposition from the church and the priests of that church. But not only that, these little churches that we support and pray for and partner with, they also even receive resistance from the civic authorities, the municipalities, the the provincial governments will not let them own any property. Even though that's illegal to prevent them from owning property, the governments simply will not permit them to own property. So they rent spaces. Some of them meet in the basements of apartment complexes. Some of them meet, uh, we met in one storefront between an insurance salesman and a pizza shop. And that was their space. And they're literally able to have it for about six hours a week. So all kinds of resistance. And yet to see the warmth, the authenticity, the sincerity, the love of the Lord, the love of one another, and to hear these people sing songs, maybe 40 people, maybe 60 people gathered together. Uh, Last Sunday we met in one church that had about 150 people in there. But to hear them sing songs that are familiar tunes, but in Italian, absolutely blessed our hearts in ways that I can't quite quantify. Just to hear them singing songs of truth in response to the Lord. And they all send their greetings to this church. 
And so it gives me great uh, warmth just to think that a few hours ago, all of these churches in Italy, seven hours away, were praying for the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church this morning. Incredibly humbling in the midst of all of their resistance. And so it's no coincidence, I don't believe, that I get to return home to Tyler and open up our passage for this morning. We're in a late spring sermon series in the book of 2 Timothy. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there. My wife Susan and I became increasingly convinced that what we encountered in Italy, the dynamic, the culture, the social pressures that the church was facing will be what we encounter, at least to some degree, within a generation. And so we're not to be surprised by this. This is sort of the message of Paul as he writes 2 Timothy. So this morning, the big idea is simply this. I think Paul is writing to his protege Timothy and he's got a two-word big idea and it simply goes like this. Recognize resistance. Recognize resistance. That's our big idea for the day. If, if nothing else, if when we walk out of here, A, we hold up Jesus as more beautiful and more believable, that's a win. But secondarily, we would have a little bit more of an acute focus in how to recognize the resistance that is in place. I just want to remind you where we are. We're in 2 Timothy. This is the very last thing the Apostle Paul writes before he's dead. He is in his second Roman imprisonment. He has written 1 Timothy, then he's written the book of Titus, and now he's writing 2 Timothy, and most likely within a matter of weeks, he's going to be dead. This is his Flanders Fields. This is his final charge to specifically Timothy and the church at Ephesus, his protege, but also by extension us. This is the thing he wants us to know and understand about the church. There are four chapters. Every single chapter in the book of 2 Timothy contains three elements. As I hope and trust and, and plead that you will go back and read 2 Timothy on your own each week, it's just four chapters. Every single chapter has these three elements. Number one, the word of God. Every single time. As Paul sits in a jail cell about to be beheaded, the word of God is, is foremost on his mind. God has spoken and when we study his word, God speaks in the present tense. Every chapter of his swan song involves the word of God. Secondly, the call to suffer. We are to willingly go headlong into harm's way. We are not to build ourselves moats and walls to protect against any inconvenience that the gospel might bring. We are called to suffer. What is God's will for our life? That we be saved, that we be sanctified, and that we suffer. The third element in every single chapter is the day of evaluation, meaning Jesus is coming again. And when he does, we will face him whose eyes are like blazing fire. And so Tyler mentioned these men who lead, these elders, these deacons, these pastors. And we know scripture is consistently clear that those who are called and ordained by this congregation will stand and give an account of this congregation. As the Lord Jesus calls my name and I walk up and there he is in all of his glory, splendor, majesty, and thanks be to God, grace and mercy, I say, this is, this is her. This is your church. Just look, this is your church. And I think Paul had that sense of affection as he's dealing and writing to Timothy. So we're gonna pick up reading 2 Timothy chapter two. I'm gonna begin reading in verse 14. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy, in the present tense, this is what I need you to do. This is what I want you to do. Paul says to Timothy, this is what you must do as you pastor, lead, love, guide, and guard the people of the church at Ephesus. Remind them of these things. <laughs> I love that. This is an imperative. This is not come up with something new, make it fresh and relevant. No, 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 no. You tell them the stuff they already know, but they already know, uh-huh. You tell them again, Timothy, you help them as the stuff because of the gravity of depravity that has a tendency to slip its way to the back of the mind. You preach the word and you bring it to the front of their mind that it begins to have a permanent resting place at the fronts of their minds that they think theologically, remind them. I'm not asking you to come up with something brand new, fresh and exciting. No, 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 no. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best, Timothy, leader of the church, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I'm gonna have to stop there and, and get a little screamy if you will allow it. Rightly handling the word of truth. It's orthotemeo. It's straightly cutting, parsing, dividing, accurately handling God's word. Understanding what did the authors mean when they wrote to the readers? What was happening then? What was going on? Where were they? What is the systematic approach that the author is writing? We are supposed to understand that. I don't know why it is, but very recently, over the last six months or so, I have had maybe five or six conversations with different partner pastors of other denominations, of other churches, locally and regionally, and it usually goes like this. Oh, you're a Bible church. Okay, wow. You guys, man, you guys just, you, you just sit around and teach the Bible all day. <laughs> Awkward. Like, we, we have punch sometimes. We, we, we have graham crackers. We do that every now and then. We have little goldfish crackers. No, no, you guys, you just teach the Bible. And I'm waiting for the downside, but they kind of mean it as a downside. And they say, no, no, but see, we're moving forward. See, the Bible's already been interpreted. The Bible's already been interpreted. Many of our clergy don't even have Bibles, I'm told. We didn't have Bibles because it's already been interpreted. Why would we want to do that again? Instead, we learn from those who 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 interpreted it. And that's how educated and brilliant we are. We study the Father's. And what was written in the ninth century, what was compared by the Neoscholastics Contra Anselm in the 11th century, that's what we study. Which sounds a little bit like eating a light bulb as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> About equally pleasant. But no, Paul makes it super clear to Timothy. You accurately cut the word. Rightly divide it. It's interesting to me that Paul does not say, hey Timothy, listen. Make sure the guy that comes after you, there's gonna be a guy named Polycarp, and he's gonna be pretty good. He's gonna get burned at the stake, but don't worry about that. Then he's gonna have a guy. Make sure that guy reads Polycarp. And then make sure that the guy that comes after that guy reads that guy. Make sure that guy reads after that guy. No. Because when God's word is studied, God speaks in the present tense. James says, 
that God's word is literally engraved, emphuton, on our hearts, our minds. And so when the living word in our souls comes into proximity with the written word on the page, something mysterious happens. I don't know. I don't feel it. That doesn't matter. Something happens when we study God's word. We study God's word. It's right there in the name. Paul says, rightly divide the text. Okay, verse 16. But, he says, avoid irreverent babble which I would say is some nuanced minutia from the ninth century AD about this, that, or the other. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more apathy? No. Ungodliness. Simply kicking the can down the road merely makes a lot of noise. And their talk will spread like gangrene. It's an infection. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. How'd you like that? For 2,000 years, you are immortalized as the guy who is the gangrene of the New Testament. Yay! That's your claim to fame. Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. They're saying, hey, listen, the resurrection's already happened. You now enjoy the full benefit and blessing of eternity now, meaning you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. And they were beginning to corrupt the faith of some. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart for iniquity. God knows whose are his. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is Paul telling Timothy, hey, remind them. Their lives matter. Stay ready so that you don't have to get ready. If you are a knife, stay a sharp knife so that when the master comes to use a knife, you are already ready. You don't have to get ready. It's a very basic passage. Stay ready so that you don't have to get ready. Verse 22, so flee youthful passions. Isn't that good news? You thought you were old, but nope, you've still got youthful passions. They're still there, Tom. <laughs> you still have to turn and run. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Sermon within a sermon, part two. I can't tell you how many emails and texts and phone calls I get where people want to argue with me about whether or not Jesus calling this book is good or not. How many cycles, how many barrels of energy have we wasted on this? In short, no. Moving on. If it's your favorite, I look forward to your emails. Come by, you can buy me some coffee. We'll talk about it. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. I was just quarrelsome, and I apologize for that. <laughs> Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him ooh, to do his will. May it never be said 
of any of us. Now then, Paul essentially says, church, church, be the church. Be the embassy of the kingdom in your setting. Be the church. Now, this is the last letter that Paul will ever write. So in chapters three and four, he shifts gears. Chapters one and two were all in the present tense. Now in chapter three, he's gonna move forward and go to the future tense. He's gonna talk about what will be happening, what to expect moving forward. And so he says in chapter three, understand this. It's an imperative. Why does Paul tell Timothy to understand something? Because he probably didn't understand something. He's making sure that this is a priority, that this is clear. Timothy, I need for you to get this. There has been some error. There has been some disinformation sown. People think the end has already come. Some people think the resurrection's already happened. No, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. In the last days, what is Paul talking about? Is Paul saying that, hey, in a day or three, Jesus is gonna come back and make a parking lot of the entire galaxy? No. Paul is using a very specific, precise term, the last days. This is the final age before the kingdom fully manifests on earth. This is the final age because the church is the fifth and final character in Scripture. You sort of have to sometimes zoom way back out, understand the great grand narrative of the Bible to understand a small phrase like the last days. In the beginning, God. God is the first character in the narrative. The Bible's merely the story of the earth. The Bible doesn't tell us all there is to know about God. In the beginning, God. He's the first character in the narrative. Second character in the narrative, angels. The angelic realm, the spirit realm, created beings who are glorious and powerful, but are subservient and beneath and below God who is sovereign. First character, God. Second character, angels. Third character, humanity. Adam and Eve. Man and woman. Male and female, he created them. Third character in scripture. But then we get all the way through Genesis 11. We get to Genesis 12. And now we are introduced to the fourth character in scripture. Now we have Jews, Israel. God creates out of nothing a nation called Israel. Abraham, this 70-something-year-old moon worshiper from Babylon, God says, I believe I'll make a new nation out of you. That's a strange call. But he makes Israel, and they are the fourth character of Scripture, and they maintain center stage, as it were, all the way through Acts chapter two. And then in Acts chapter two, we're introduced to the fifth and the final character. It's the church. Those for whom Christ died, those who are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, it's the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. This is the fifth and final character. There will not be a sixth and there will not be another age after this one until the risen Lord Jesus himself bodily, literally, physically reigns from Jerusalem. But know this, it hasn't happened yet. We will receive opposition. There will be resistance during this age. In other words, this is massively important. It goes like this. No, we can't. We can't fix it. No amount of government, no amount of education, no amount of programming, no amount of economics, no amount of religion, no amount of holding hands and planting trees is going to solve the problems of this world. No, we can't. 
We could bring home every soldier that's ever fought a war in the 21st century and give everybody free gasoline. Wouldn't save a single human soul. No, we can't. We will have opposition. We will have resistance in this age. Expect it. Plan on it. Make it a part of your normative recognition. Recognize resistance. And then Paul's going to go, well, how shall I say this? Paul's going to go all Paul. Paul, you can tell, still had some trappings of his Phariseeism because when he finds a list, he wants to just make it longer. Paul's going to tell us there's all this resistance that we're going to encounter in this age. And it's perhaps not what we think. Earlier, Paul wrote a book to the church in Ephesus. We call it Ephesians. And in chapter six of that book, he said, you will encounter resistance. But it's not against flesh and blood. It is against the powers of the prince of the air and all of the thrones and the dominions. It's spiritual. Now you'd hear that and say, wow, church, you're, you're gonna encounter all of this evil and wickedness and oppression and resistance. Woof, what's it gonna look like? Well, surely it's gonna look like the plot in one of the, I don't know, 912 recent superhero movies that have been released where some supervillain devises a super weapon and has a super wicked plan to destroy the universe because that's novel. No, it's not that at all. It's much, much more dangerous. Paul goes all Paul, and he gives a list of 18 things, 18 vices, if you will, that are going to afflict people in this age. And he just rapid fire goes off on them. Number two, uh, verse two, for people will be lovers of self. They will put themselves at the center of their affections. We always choose that which we desire most. We always do. You can't help it. You always choose that which you desire most. And when you begin to see society fracture and implode when everyone is choosing only for their own good above and beyond the good of anybody else. People will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money. I just want you to remember, the Apostle Paul is sitting in a jail cell, a dungeon in Rome, and he's seeing the height of human evolution the Roman Empire, and he sees the decay, he sees the decrepitude, he sees the decline and the demise. He says, understand, church, you have been called to live as the bride of Christ in harm's way. Expect this, people will be lovers of money. I know that's hard for you and me in this day and age to imagine, but just, just, just go with me on this. People will love money. Why? Because for millennia, money is always the great scorecard. It lets me know how I'm doing. If I have more than I used to, then I must be progressing. I must be moving forward. I must be doing better. God must be happy with me. If I have more than you, then I'm superior to you. If you have more than me, and I promise you do, then uh, you know what? Uh, I'm bitter and resentment, resentful to you because somehow you caught more breaks than I did, but that's okay. I'll get you one day. And that's what money does to us. When money becomes the scorecard of a society, it implodes. What Paul is saying here, lovers of money, proud. Uh, it's a technical term, aladzon. It means they are empty. They are imposters. They have nothing of substance within them, and so they are loud and boastful. You know someone like this. They're in that cubicle right across from you. Your wife is married to one. <clears throat> no, I'm kidding. That's not you. You're empty. You're loud. You're a braggart. You make a whole lot of noise so that people think you have substance when there's nothing inside, which leads to arrogance. 
This is blasphemoid. This is where you actually try to pull others down to your level or push them down so that you can elevate yourself. By the way, in scripture, every single time ever anyone tries to elevate themselves, it always 100% of the time fails. And yet this is the normative human heart. It's interesting that all of this resistance that the church encounters, all of it comes from a human heart. It's not coming from the outside. It's coming from how we are. We are by nature God-haters, is what Peter says in Acts chapter two and three. Our hearts are not tuned to sing his praise by default because we are sinful from conception. So there's pride, there's arrogance, there's abuse. This is where you actually don't just begin to pull people down and elevate yourself. You actually want to inflict and impose bad on others as a means of elevating yourself disobedient to their parents. <gasps> I know, like the worst thing ever. This reminds me of Paul's list in Romans chapter one where they're doing all sorts of things, sexual immorality, killing, uh, abuse, and they disobey their parents. What's the implication? If you can't obey and respect your parents, then you probably can't respect and obey your God. The problem becomes when the parents resemble all of the things that have already come on this list and they're not worthy of respect nor obedience and the society continues to fracture and implode. Ungrateful, ah, karistas, they have no grace, they have no mercy because they have no peace and therefore they can give no grace, they can give no mercy, they cannot be instruments of peace because they've not received it. Unholy. Again, all these are technical terms that Paul is using. This has the idea of no relationship with God whatsoever. And so your entire life is completely secular. You have no fellowship with the Almighty whatsoever. And so you as a person are completely and utterly untethered to anything eternal. It's a bad way to be. Well, that leads to more things. That produces a heartlessness. It has the idea of the absence of family affection. Unappeasable. You can't get resolution. You're always restless. Something is always wrong. Wow. Slanderous. Now you are making accusations against other people. This is a technical term, diabolo. It's where we get our name for devil. Diabolo, dia through, balo, shoot. The devil shoots through you. And when you become slanderous, you begin to shoot through others with your words. And by the way, little sermon within a sermon number three, simply ending that with, and bless his heart, does not excuse the slander. You can't just, mm, we should pray for him after completely assassinating his character. That does not excuse it. It is still a diabolo. You are shooting through him without self-control, literally lacking the strength to restrain oneself. Brutal. Now we're descending into a sort of animalistic, emotion-ridden, hot-tempered, passionate abuse of one another. Not loving good. This is a technical idea. Not loving good, meaning we will become a people who redefine what good is. There's a universal understanding of what good is, but we as a society, no, 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 no. We will redefine what good is because we say so. And so now societally in Paul's day, and I would contend in our day as well, good simply means that which makes me happy in the moment. If it makes me happy in this moment, it's good. And who are you or anybody else to say otherwise? Paul says, I see it in Rome. 
I will see it in 2,000 years. They're treacherous. They betray one another. They devise schemes of harming one another. Reckless. The idea is literally falling forward without being able to stop. It's what Judas was called and his betrayal. Swollen with conceit. All they can think about, their hearts, minds, and souls are completely consumed only with self as the center of the decision-making process. Lovers of pleasure. Paul says, you become the kind of person that looks around and everybody else you come into contact with is merely an object and an opportunity for your pleasure and nothing more, rather than lovers of God. God is not the center of your affection whatsoever. Then here's the worst ones of all. It went pretty bad, went downhill in a hurry, but here's the worst ones. Having the appearance of godliness. They look moral, they look good, they look socially conformed, but denying its power, Paul says, avoid such people. It's really interesting. Jesus was called the friend of sinners, but he always warned his disciples to avoid the Pharisees. Those who look good, but who have really just practiced and managed their sin. They've bound it all up eternally so that they can look good externally. Paul says, have nothing to do with them. That's hard to hear as a pastor because often those kinds of people are affluent, they're influent, they've been trained on how to tithe, they have some sway in the community. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, that right there is gangrenous. Have nothing to do with that. Verse six, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Now that's just a strange verse, okay? That's just a weird verse. I don't think we have that happening at this campus, but if that's happening to you, please let us know. We, we, want, we want to be aware of that. It's actually a technical term. Those who find vulnerabilities. You think Satan cares at all how he gets in? He just wants in. I love that if some of you have the old King James Version, it actually translates it for some who creep into households and capture silly women. <laughs> I kind of prefer that translation because I'm, that's just fun. But no, it's not what it's talking about here. Finding the vulnerabilities who, because they're burdened with sins, are led astray by various passions. The latest book to hit the shelf, the latest blog to hit the screen leads them away because they have an undergirding of sin and passion that allows them to be moved back and forth. Okay? Verse seven, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always wanting you to read the latest blog. Always wanting you to read the newest book that has come down the pike, but never actually knowing anything that has substance or matter. Avoid such things. Verse eight, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Now this is a fun one because you're not gonna find these two dudes in the Old Testament. This comes from an ancient Jewish legend that Janus and Jambres were the names of the magicians at Pharaoh's court that opposed Moses. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul includes them, so perhaps that actually was their names. We don't know. But the implication is clear. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, those who oppose you, Timothy, So Moses is to Timothy as these false teachers are the magicians of Pharaoh that opposed God and his leader. Yikes. Those men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Let's watch it. Let's see how it goes. Let's see if this lifestyle that they are 
prescribing and proclaiming. Let's see if it actually works. Paul gives a stinging rebuke to the society and a penetrating preparation for the church as she continues to exist as a beacon of light in a dark place going boldly into harm's way. Why is this Paul's final message to the church? Why is this here? Well, it would be really easy to read what I call the egregious 18, all of those things, and to make an application that goes like this. God is good, sin is bad, stop it! And that's oftentimes how people will treat this passage. God is good, sin is bad, stop it! But that would be an epic fail. That is not an application point of this passage because what the text is telling us is that we can't on our own. We are absolutely incapable of managing all of those things. In fact, all false religions are built on that notion. It's because it's an elevation of the human capacity and it's totally powerless. Paul says in Philippians 3 that at our very best, the most excellent thing we can produce is the egregious 18. So that is not the application of this passage. But this one is. Doctrine matters. What we teach matters. In the words of those great theologians, the great, great learned ones, Charlie Pride and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, who said you have to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Doctrine matters. Listen, I know generationally and in our culture, in our context in the 21st century, all you need is love is the popular refrain. But that is insufficient. There's a popular Christian song about 10 years ago and the chorus went thus, let's put away the doctrine and love a little more. Insufficient. I'm sorry. No, doctrine absolutely matters. It is the foundation on which we can establish a well-reasoned concern for others. One of my old pastors used to say, those who drive by our doors may not like our steeple, but they need to know that it's there and that it stands for something. Doctrine matters. We continue to teach God's truth from God's word. Which leads me to the third point here. Know what the one who knows you wants to know. That's what I get from this passage. As Paul the apostle prepares his protege to preach to his people. Know what the one who knows you wants you to know. There's all sorts of things that happen in churches that cause people to leave that have nothing to do with why they should actually stay or leave. There's all sorts of accusations by liberal groups or conservative groups on either side of the aisle that really have nothing to do with what the doctrine of the church is. So let me just say, if you're wrestling somewhere, perhaps you're wrestling with this church or you're wrestling with another church of a family member, here are eight essentials of the faith and if you find yourself in a context of faith that is outside of these, I would say you need to not be in fellowship with that congregation of faith. Eight very quick essentials. Number one, the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. It is God's Word. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is complete. Not the English Standard Version, not the NIV, not the NASB. In its original, God's Word is infallible, inerrant, and it is the only inerrant source of truth in our lives. And that starts the whole thing going. Number two is the doctrine of the Trinity. God exists eternally in three persons and there is one God. 
If you do not hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, you can call your religion anything you want, but don't call it Christian because that one's taken. The doctrine of the Trinity is part parcel foundational to a Christian orthodoxy. Number two, the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ. He is 100% God, 100% man. The math doesn't work. He's unconcerned. That's how it works. Number four, the spiritual lostness of all humanity and need for regeneration. Something has gone wrong in every single one of us. I heard a very large denomination, uh, their denominational leader recently say, essentially, everybody's in. We just now need to love a little more. Everybody's in. Not consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Number five, the substitutionary, atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. I think we sang a song about that. Jesus accomplished something. He was not a token. He accomplished atonement for those who believe it. Number six, salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We cannot earn it. Number seven, the indwelling by the Holy Spirit of every Christian at new birth. Every single Christian is indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. He literally could not be closer in this age. I had that conversation with some folks in Italy and it was like they heard it all over again for the first time and they just rejoiced. It was wonderful. Number eight, the physical return of Jesus Christ in glory. He's coming back. And those eight things we would say are the framework of orthodoxy. Doctrine matters. Know what the one who knows you wants you to know. Recognize resistance. When you encounter a, a, a context, a church that says, you know, listen, listen, listen. Jesus was our model. He was our example. He was a martyr. We should go and live likewise. If that's all it ever is, turn and have nothing to do with that. That is outside. That will do you no good. But there is something interesting about this list, this egregious 18. I did some research on all 18 of those issues and candidly, I didn't have to look that far <laughs> because I kept on seeing a selfie. Like it was me. All of those things I am more than capable of doing. But that's when I remember the glory and the goodness and the grace of the gospel. Because as awful as the egregious 18 are, my Bible tells me that Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, became all of that. And not only did he become all of that, he received the punishment for all of that that I am and he took it from me. But wait, there's more. Not steak knives. No, no. He also gives you the full righteousness of the Son of God because it's not enough to merely have your sin removed. You must also be full of the righteousness of heaven. And this Jesus does. He became all of those things. He became resistance itself. And God was pleased to crush his son so that he would not have to crush you. And see, that's really good news. And that's what Paul wants to leave the church with. That's what we want to leave the church with. So if you're here this morning and you're still trying to figure out a way or the right social program to get a part of that you can change the world newsflash the world's already been changed 2,000 years ago in an obscure hill in Jerusalem it's been changed already it's nothing new we get to be reminded and gobsmacked all over again so I encourage you to believe he really is who he says he was he did what he said he would do he lived he died perfectly fulfilling the demands of the law paying the wages of sin which is death and he offers us his full righteousness I invite you to believe. Maybe against all your intellect and all your brilliance and all of your genius, I invite you to believe.
And for the rest of you, I invite you to believe all over again, not unto conversion and salvation, but recognize the impact of the gospel. Recognize that there is resistance and we are to go forward into it. Lo, he is with us, even to the end of this age. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would continue to prepare our hearts as in just a moment we will take communion together. We pray, God, that you would remove any sin that so easily entangles any other hindrance and that those who receive grace would give grace. Pray, God, that you would uh, do work by your spirit in the name of Jesus with every person here. I pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.